It's great to see you today. Um, I have to tell you that one of the things that I have come to love um, in a worship time is when we speak and sing out the name of Jesus. I, I, I know when the Bible says there's power in his name, it doesn't just mean that we say it and there's like instant power, and yet there is something literal about putting that name on our tongues. I think that just heals and encourages and does all the things that that only he can do. So um, that song this morning, Only Jesus, was just rich for me today. I hope it was for you. Hey, before we get into our message this morning, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, if you're new with us. I do want to remind you that our, our church, for the last number of decades, has been involved in a story that God is, has been writing across the ocean in a little country called Nigeria. Nigeria is a Uh, a poor African country, I think actually the poorest African country, right there on the kind of armpit of Africa, the western edge. Um, And God has used um, this church, people from this church, missionaries, um, giving, prayer, uh, the life of this church to be a part of ministry over there. And so people have come to Christ for years over there. It's been a story that's been ongoing and continues. I bring it up because this September, in just less than a month actually, I have the opportunity to travel um, with Carl Palmer um, over to Nigeria and speak at a pastor's conference. Rich Gardner has been trying to get me to do this for a number of years, and finally I feel like it was the right time from the Lord. And so uh, I'm not going to give you all the details today, more to come, but we are going to invite you to come along with us to Nigeria this year. Um, through your prayers especially. Janice tells me that traveling with Rich is dangerous because he does not see fear, and so I'm nervous. But So pray, 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 and then um, look for just... We're going to be talking about the story of Nigeria and our church the next few weeks. So I wanted to get you praying now and raise some anticipation and some excitement about some of the stories that are to come. And with that, I want to shift gears and get into our sermon today. So let me pray and we'll do that. Father, this morning we we ask for your presence and your spirit to bring this word to life in our minds and hearts. May this not just be a a Sunday or a sermon or a time together, but a, a moment when we encounter you and by the power of your spirit, you encourage us and challenge us and help us and and push us forward into the life that you long for us to live. Um, So God, we. We invite you, we open our hearts and our palms to you and say, do what you need to do, Lord Jesus. And we'll give you all the glory. And we pray it in your name. Amen. Like I said, this morning we're continuing our series in the Psalms. We're looking this summer at the language of faith, this poetic book where language is given to people who are attempting, in spite of all the struggles and problems in this world, step into lives of faith and trust in God. And this book puts language to that and encourages us in that. And this morning our subject, as Ali said earlier, is doubt. And I want to start with just a couple definitions, because when we think of doubt, a lot of us think of different things. Uh, The word doubt actually originates from the Latin word dubitare, And it means this, to hesitate or to waver between two things. To hesitate or to waver between two things. This past week, um, many of our students were off at camp, our elementary kids, our middle school kids. My wife went along as a middle school counselor, God bless her soul. And she had a cabin full of girls. And one of the things they do right at the beginning of the week to sort of bond the kids together is this thing that is often done at camp. It's called the trust fall. 
And at this particular camp, apparently, according to my wife, there was a platform, about a four-foot-high platform that the kids would stand up on, a little higher than the stage, and they would turn their backs to the abyss below, and the students would sort of kind of line up on either side and put their hands out in kind of zipper fashion, like in between one another. And then the student here was supposed to say, can I trust you? And they would say yes, and then the student would fall back and be caught, at least in theory. Um, and, and she was telling me the story of this one young lady who, uh, who had some doubt, who was hesitating, and she would stand at the edge, and she didn't ask the question with much confidence. Instead, she said, can I trust you? And she's turning around, and the counselor in charge of the station is saying, you're not allowed to look. You can't turn around. You just have to ask the question and then trust your classmates. And she's, okay. And then she's, can I trust you? And she keeps looking back. She can't bring herself to actually take that step of faith. Doubt and hesitation are just weighing on her mind. And I say to that young girl, you are smart. Those are middle school kids, you know? No. Um, but it sort of, it sort of displays the power of doubt in our lives. Even when we know we shouldn't doubt or we're not, no, we're not supposed to doubt. Sometimes we just can't help it. The Greeks, they take the idea of doubt up a notch and they describe it as this. The tearing of the mind. That's what doubt means in Greek. This idea that sometimes doubt is this not fun, agonizing process that actually pulls your thinking in two different directions and you feel like you're being divided internally. And then there's the Chinese. The Chinese actually defined doubt with a word picture and it's a picture of a person whose feet are in two different boats. Now, if you can imagine that for a minute, you know that that looks good for a second, but that's going nowhere good fast, right? And and what the Chinese are getting at is the idea that if you remain in a state of doubt for too long, if you allow doubt to be kind of the predominant place of residence and driving force of your life, some bad stuff's going to happen to you. Now, I do want to point this out at the very beginning of this message. Doubt is not the same as defiance. When we talk about faith... Doubt is not the same as unbelief. Being sure about something is not the same as rejecting something. Here, here, let me say it this way. Doubt says, I'm struggling to believe. I want to believe. I want to trust. I just can't quite get there yet. Defiance chooses to stay in, I won't believe no matter what the evidence says. Doubt is looking for the light. Defiance chooses to stay in darkness. Doubt is the pursuit of truth. A painful pursuit of truth sometimes, but a pursuit of truth nonetheless. And defiance is being content with a lie. So right off the bat, I want to declare that while doubt is not always fun or pleasurable, it is not the enemy of faith. In many ways, doubt actually puts us on a path towards faith. What's the opposite of faith, by the way? The opposite of faith, yeah, you could probably put a lot of things there. I would say the opposite of faith is certainty. Where there's certainty, you don't need much faith. And so doubt, another way of thinking about doubt is is that it actually sets the platform for faith to live. Because where there is doubt, you can now apply faith. You can trust. You can step out. Listen to this quote from Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. He says this about doubt. Doubts are not incompatible with faith. Some people seem to think that once you become a Christian, you should never be assailed by doubts. But that is not so. Peter still had faith. 
as he panicked in the storm in Matthew 14. His faith was not gone, but because it was weak, doubt mastered him and overwhelmed him and he was shaken. Doubts will attack us, but that does not mean that we are to allow them to master us. See, this sermon, we're not talking about how to get rid of doubt. We're not talking about how to kind of move from doubt to certainty, to a place of certainty. We're talking in this sermon about how we master our doubts rather than being mastered by them. How we prevent our doubts from keeping us for walking into a, a life of faith with God. And, and too many of us have, have learned from church over the years, probably intrinsically, in, in, implicitly, that doubt is something to fear. It's something to run from at all costs. It's something to deny. But one thing I love about the Bible is this. It never hides from doubt. You ever notice this about the scriptures? The scriptures are not shy about highlighting and pointing out doubt, even in its most faith-filled subjects. The writer of Hebrews, for example, um, says this in Hebrews 11. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Without trusting God, is it impossible to please him? Now you think about doubt and how it takes a lot of faith to overcome doubt. So again, doubt setting the platform for faith, for actually pleasing God. But further, um, it goes on to talk about all these amazing uh, feats of trust that these individuals had in God. This is Hebrews 11. It's the hall of faith, hall of the individuals that trusted God, huge. But if you go back and read their stories... All of them, every single one of them, had huge doubts, major struggles, massive amounts of uncertainty and hesitation. They were constantly looking over their shoulders saying, God, can I trust you? And he would say yes, and they would walk away from the platform time and time again. And our psalm today is no exception. Psalm 73, and it's written by a guy named Asaph. If you open your Bibles... Um, with me to Psalm 73. If you're using a pew Bible, we're going to be today on page 469. I want to tell you this. Asaph is not just a random guy. Most of you have not heard of him, but he is a spiritual leader. He is the author of 12 Psalms. Like on his resume is, I wrote part of the Bible. It's pretty good spiritual resume. He was in all practical sense, the worship pastor for the nation of Israel. He's the one who led the nation of Israel into postures of praise and adoration so that they could walk in faith with the living God. And yet Asaph finds his mind torn about some things. In this psalm, he talks about it. And a great quote I read this week said this, Asaph's words about doubting, God uses... I wrote this quote wrong in my notes. I'm just realizing this. You ever do this? Okay. Asaph's words about doubting have become God's words to doubting people. There we go. I got it. I reworked it in my mind. Asaph's words about doubting have become God's words to doubting people. So we're going to dive in with Asaph this morning and learn some things from him about dealing with doubt. And right away, Asaph starts this psalm. He launches in in just the way you'd expect a worship leader to do so. Strum, right? Good morning, church. God is good. And the church responds, all the time. It was very unconvincing, actually, for you guys. Um, that's okay. Um, he kind of rebukes it in a minute. He says, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But then all of a sudden, in verse 2, he takes like a, a, a right-hand turn and he shifts gears. But as for me, he says, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. 
So God is good. He's good to good people. He's good to the pure and hard. But my feet have almost slipped. I've lost my foothold. And what he's saying here is this. He's saying, there was a time in my life when I couldn't buy it. When I no longer fully believed it. When I couldn't trust this truth that God is good. Verse 2 in Hebrew is actually a word picture. It's a, and it's the picture of someone climbing up a steep rock face. Anyone here a rock climber? Got any rock climbers in the crowd? No, oh, one. Here we go, right over here. Dale, I like it. Um, yeah, our, our high school pastor, Nick Mastrud, is a, is a rock climber. And I'm not a rock climber, but rock climbing is one of those sports that I admire. Because I... You know, there's sports that you love because you've played them and you were good at them and you enjoy them. And then there's sports that you love because you think, how in the world do people do this? I could never do that. It actually blows my mind. This is actually a picture of my favorite rock climber. His name is Alex Honnold. And just this summer on June 3rd, he did the very first ever free solo climb of El Capitan in Yosemite National Park. And just if, in case you don't know what that is, there's a few pictures here. This is crazy, crazy stuff. He climbs the face of El Cap, 3,000 feet of sheer granite rock face, and he does it with no parachute and no supporting ropes. In other words, one slip, one mess up, and Alex is toast. He did it in less than four hours. To train... Oh yeah, there he is at the top looking over the edge. Um, that just kind of makes my toes curl. It's like a bad accident. Like it scares me to death, but I can't look away, you know. Um, to train, he would hang from his fingertips, next picker, for an hour a day. Can you imagine that? He would just, just hang from your fingertips and little cracks for an hour a day. Right? That's why he didn't die. <laughs> because he trained a lot. So, so that's Alex, right? And, and the psalmist today is using this kind of imagery. He, he's painting this kind of a picture to, so, to show the severity of Asaph's doubt. You see, this is not doubt about if he chose the right donut at the donut store or not. No, this is Asaph wrestling with the very foundation of his life, the thing that gives his life direction and guidance over, over everything else. And he says, all of a sudden, my foundation for life has started to shift. Doubt almost prevented me from trusting God and moving forward in my life of faith, he's telling us. I almost slipped. Here's another thing about doubt, about slipping. The thing about slipping, it always happens when you least expect it. Right? You never slip when you think you're going to slip. Because if you know you're going to slip, then what do you do? You don't slip, right? Slip always happens like that fast and completely catches you off guard. Um, i never forget this time. We were on a hike on the, uh, the coast with my family. And we're walking along the trail. And all of a sudden, there's this giant tree that has fallen over this huge log that's running right alongside the trail um, for like 30, 40 feet when these giant, you know, Douglas firs. And I hop up on the tree and I'm walking along the tree and my youngest daughter, PJ, says just kind of matter-of-factly, kind of looks over and says, you shouldn't do that, dad. And I was like, 
why not? I got this. And I felt, you know, I had new Columbia hiking shoes on. They were very tacky and I felt super secure and I'm just cruising along. Then all of a sudden with one step, whoop, my foot goes out. I land right on my hindquarters, right on this tree and like just dug in and I'm writhing in pain. I'm, I'm, I'm like wailing because it hurt that bad. One of the sharpest pains I've ever felt. Luckily, I did not break my tailbone, but it was really bad. And then PJ just looks over to me and goes, told you. But it's the idea that, that when we slip, it happens like instantly and, and, and suddenly and we cannot help it. We cannot control when we slip. And that's how doubt is. It comes unexpectedly. It comes instantly and we cannot control it. It was my freshman year in college. I was a freshman. I was away from my home for the very first time. And up until this point, I had been a Jesus follower. Actually, I committed my life to Christ as a freshman in high school. And so I've been following Jesus. And all of a sudden, in this moment where my life was upside down, where I was kind of reworking all of my friendships and social world, and I was away from the safety and security of my home, right in this moment when I really wanted to have the the steady pillar of faith and trust in Jesus, doubts about my faith began to emerge. And I fought it. I did not want them. I did not want to doubt my faith. In fact, everything in me said, no, just believe. And yet there was something happening in my mind and heart that was preventing me from feeling real steady and safe and secure on the foundation of God in my life. I was starting to slip. I was just about to slip. I was hanging on by my fingertips. And so this morning I want to talk a little bit from Asaph's perspective about how we deal with doubt, how we analyze it, how we work through our doubt when suddenly it's upon us. And some of you have been there, some of you are there, and some of you will be there at some point. Three things today from Psalm 73. One, consider the story you are telling yourself. This is, this is a huge point and it has far-reaching implications. For some of you, this point could absolutely transform your entire life. It's called internal narrative. It's what psychologists are now saying is what largely makes us who we are. They say, you know, psychologists are now very confident in saying, you know who you are, you are what you think. The stories you tell yourself in your brain, in your mind, make you who you are. That has more power than anything else to guide and shape your life. And by the way, um, this idea we find in Scripture, right? Paul says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Right? He understands this concept. The Bible had this nailed down long before the psychologists did. Um, and the idea is, is that we find our, the roots of doubt in some story. So here's the thing. If there's doubt in your life, the roots of that doubt are growing out of some narrative, some story that is playing and running through your brain. Now, this can, again kind of spread out into a lot of areas of your life. It doesn't have to just be about doubts of faith or doubts in God. Let me give you an example. A number of years ago, I was doing marriage counseling with a couple um, from the church I served back in California, and they were struggling. And after spending a good amount of time with them, after a number of sessions, it became very, very apparent 
that the root cause of their troubles was a story that the husband was just letting play through his brain over and over and over again. And it went something like this. She doesn't love me. She's never really loved me. The only reason she married me is because I was her only option at the time and she was getting older. And someday... She'll figure out that she never loved me and I'm sure she'll leave me. And this was the narrative that would run through his brain over and over and over again. And let me tell you about how that narrative played out. That narrative made every single issue in their marriage a huge thing. She would say, I'm a little disappointed that you left your sneakers in the middle of the room. And he would hear, I knew it. I knew you were completely dissatisfied for me. I knew you didn't love me. I knew this marriage was not a safe place to be. And he would flee. And so all these little issues became huge issues because they fit right into this story that he was running over and over and over again. Now, there was a reason that this guy was telling himself this story. He had learned from his dad, actually, at a real young age, not to trust people. And yet this story was destroying him and it was constantly sowing seeds of doubt about his relationships, all of his relationships, and specifically his marriage. Friends, let me just pause right here and say this to you. Maybe you've got some stories playing in your mind that you need to consider. Some narratives that have been playing, that you're playing on accident or on purpose sometimes. And maybe you've been playing them for years. Maybe you've been playing them so often and for so long that you forget they're even rolling. Stories about your marriage. Stories about your spouse. Think about what you think about your spouse if you're a married person in this room. What you tell yourself about them, him or her. About who they are, how they act, how they feel. Maybe there's some stories about your job or your coworkers that just continue to play over and over again. Maybe you rehearsed these stories on your drive to work every day. Maybe there's some stories about your church. Maybe about your pastor. I don't want to hear those, so please do not email me this week. Maybe there's some stories, I'm getting personal now, about your parents. You know what I've discovered? Um, in my own life and in the life of so many people that I've talked to. And I've heard this from the parental perspective and also from the child perspective. There's this tendency that we have as we get older to become increasingly critical of our parents. Have you ever noticed this? And part of it is we, we focus and fixate our brains. This is the sinful nature of humanity, right? We drift towards the negative so often and we tell ourselves these negative stories about mom and dad. Now, some of you in here, you had tough home lives and you have hard parents and I'm not saying that those stories are not true. But I, what I am suggesting is that some of us had good parents. Parents who did their best. Parents who loved us. Parents who weren't perfect and yet we fixated on that last little part. Maybe you've got some stories playing in your mind about politics these days, about our world, about people groups. You know, Matt mentioned it in his prayer. There's a lot of hate in our world these days, and there's just things happening between different groups of people that, quite honestly, I don't understand. And sometimes I think, how could people get these ideas? How could they live into these stories? How could they treat other human beings this way? And I'll tell you how. There are some stories that have been playing in their minds for a long time, some stories that have been passed down 
from generation to generation. Some stories that different cultures, even in our American culture, are predominant and loud and that appeal to the fallen sin nature of humanity. Friends, you got any stories that you're playing in your mind these days? Again, back to our psalm. Because what we have in this psalm, what this psalm really is, is primarily Asaph letting us in to a story that he's been playing in his mind. This is a psalm about doubt, but it's about the story underneath his doubt. This is just amazing stuff. Like psychologists would just have a field day with this guy. Here's what he says. He's talking about the evil, the wicked people of the world around him. He says, they have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Their pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves in violence. They're these violent, awful people. They have callous hearts. Their imaginations have no limits. And he's talking about like vile, decrepit imaginations, obviously here. He's saying they scoff and speak with malice. Even their language is awful. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Kind of like power-hungry folks. Their mouths lay claim to heaven. Their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. Like, And people don't even see it. People don't even see how wretched they are. They're popular. They're famous. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? They mock and scoff at God himself. This is what the wicked are like, he says. Always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. You see, there's this story that's playing in Asaph's mind about these people, these awful, wicked people. They're awful, wicked people. They're terrible. They're the the scum of the earth. And yet, they've got everything. They're living the blessed life that God promised to me and to us and to the pure in the heart. And the story's just going and going and going and then, and then it kicks, kicks away from them and he starts to say, and here's the story about me. Verse 13. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure. I love the drama. I mean like, surely in vain I have kept my heart clean, God. And it's like, and the Lord's like, oh brother, are you kidding me right now? You know, let's take a look at your heart, buddy. Anyway, um, I've washed my hands in innocence all day long. I've been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. You know, they're terrible, awful people and they have everything. And I'm this perfect, holy, righteous, clean, pure-hearted individual. And I have nothing. And our first point today is consider the story. You see, what we see from Asaph here is at least he understands the story. He's paused long enough to say... And this is the story that's been running through my mind. This is the story behind his doubt. And it's causing him to doubt God's goodness in light of all this injustice in the world. Friends, hear this. Every doubt grows in the soil of a story you have allowed to play through your mind. Now, sometimes that story is true, and sometimes that doubt is well-founded, but every doubt finds its roots in a story you've allowed to play through your mind. So here comes step two. Consider the story you are telling yourself and then critique it. Critique the validity of the message. If you're going to let a story shape your life, let's make sure that story is true. Let's make sure that story is founded on truth. Let's make sure that story is going to be a life-giving story. Uh, A great quote I read this week said, think about what you're thinking about. That's just what the Bible says. (laughs) 
think about what you're thinking about. Take every thought captive. In other words, be careful not to just let random thoughts float through your brain. Be intentional here. If your brain makes you who you are, be intentional about what's going through your brain. Basic New Testament stuff. And that's what Asaph does here. He says, if I had spoken out like that, I would have been, I would have betrayed your kids. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. You see, he has this story playing in his mind, but he doesn't just accept it. He doesn't just go, yep, that's the story. He wrestles with it. He dives into it. He tries to understand what he's thinking and how he's feeling on a deeper level. This is important because the doubts in our lives, friends, especially doubts about the big things in our lives, the foundational things in our lives, God and faith, they can at times seem overwhelming. It's hard. Why don't people think about what they're thinking about? Because it's hard work. It's exhausting. It's overwhelming. It's like trying to drive through a thick, dense fog. You've ever driven through a thick, dense fog? You've ever been in a fog that just absolutely sidelined you and you had to pull the car over? That's, that's what trying to wade through some of the stories that are embedded in your brain is like. But friends, do, let me ask you a question. Do you know how much water is in a dense fog that covers seven city blocks a hundred feet high? You don't know, do you? No, I see. I ask you questions that you don't know, but I have found the answers to on the internet, so it makes me look smart. Um, no, that's not why. I, I'm doing it to make a point. The Bureau of Standards in Washington says that all of that fog is less than a glass of water. Less than a glass of water. And I'll have a sip for now. Mm. You see, when we stop and we say, let's think, let's analyze, let's consider some new perspectives, that's often when our doubts, the doubts that feel huge, get put back in the cup. And they no longer have the ability to sideline us and prevent us from living by faith. You see, they don't go away. They just can't overwhelm us anymore. One of the stories that... Um, that foster doubt about God and faith in our world is this story. It's a popular story. It's a story about certainty. Um, and the idea is that there are faith kinds of people and there are rational, logical, scientific kinds of people. And friends, this story needs to be critiqued. Because it's a story, I think, that keeps a lot of people from living lives of faith with God. And the critique is not hard. It is very easy to put all that fog back into the cup because here's the answer. Everyone lives by faith. Everyone in our world makes daily routine life decisions by faith. You can't get a a whole lot or anything done in this world if you don't live by faith. Very few things are certain in our world. In fact, you know what science tells us these days? that you can't even be certain about this table because there's actually the matter of this table, there's actually less of this table here than there is more of it. If you really break it down like on a molecular, on a molecular level, there's more gaps in this table than there is solidity. So sometimes what we think to be true isn't even true. Science even tells us that. We can't see things as clearly as we, as we often think we can, which is why we must critique the stories in our lives. Everyone lives by faith. And let me define faith. Faith, I would say, this is just basic definition for us, a working definition. After considering the evidence, I make a decision to trust, even though there is not absolute certainty or proof. You see, it's not, it's not just believe anything you want. That's not faith. 
Faith is follow the evidence. And the evidence may not get you all the way to certainty or proof, but the evidence points in a direction. And now you can take a step of faith. Again, you have to do this just to live where you invest your money. You can't do it. You know, there's no proof that it will produce. There's just evidence. You have to have faith. When you drive down the highway, there is no proof that someone won't swerve over into your lane and kill you instantly. You drive by faith. When you take a job or hire a contractor, that's a big step of faith, or purchase a used car, you do it by faith. Even for major, major, huge life decisions with massive implications, they require faith. When I got married, there was no certainty. I dated my wife since we were juniors in high school. And we did it all the way through college and through graduation. And still, even after knowing her all those years, there was no certainty. There was no 100% guarantee that it was the right decision. I knew that I wanted to do it. I thought it was a good decision. I knew I was marrying up. Amy told me I was marrying up. And yet, there still was no guarantee. You see, we all enjoy proof and certainty, but it rarely exists. There's the illusion of it at times. But it's rarely there. And this applies to major life philosophies as well. All of them. In her book, A History of Doubt, Jennifer Hedge says that people have different explanations for explaining our world, explaining this reality um, in which we live. And that reality, for the most part, drives people's lives. It sets their life on a trajectory, a certain path. And at one end of the scale, there's this idea that the universe is nothing but an accidental pile of stuff jostling around with no rhyme or reason. And the earth is just this tiny, tiny, utterly inconsequential speck of nothing in the corner of space. And in the blink of an eye, it will go away, never to be judged or noticed or remembered. Does that depress you as much as it depresses me? Now imagine a conversation between two people. One says, you know, the universe is a pile of stuff. The other says, no, I think it was created by someone, by a personal, loving God, and that there's a point and we have a purpose. See, this is not a conversation between a person of faith and a person without faith, because neither position can be proved. Both positions are faith statements, and they both have implications. They both are founded on stories that will set your life in a direction. The question is, which statement will you put your faith in? Which statement will give your life purpose and meaning and direction? You know, here's another, here's another life-directing worldview that kind of sits underneath the naturalistic worldview. Materialism. You know, a lot of people in our world today, it's like, God, no God, I don't really care. I'm agnostic, kind of puts that aside. But if you look at what they've put their faith in, they've put their faith, especially here in America, in materialism. Some in this room have got more faith in materialism than they believe they do. I have more faith in materialism than I sometimes realize. So I'm not just preaching at you, I'm preaching with you. We're preaching together here. And materialism says, I believe that if I amass enough money and get enough stuff and achieve enough worldly success and comfort, then my soul will be satisfied and happy. But there's no certainty in that. And the question is, what does the evidence say? The issue you see, friends, is not about finding certainty, but finding the right things to put our faith in. Finding the right story to play in our minds. And critiquing is what we have is what we do when we decide to trust. Critiquing is us asking this question. If I trust this, if I live like this, if I follow this path, if I continue with this line of thinking, where will it lead me? And this leads to our final point today. 
Consider the story you're telling. Critique the validity of the message. Critique, where is this story leading my life? When you're thinking things about your spouse, extrapolate out and go, where is this going to take my marriage if I continue in this line of thinking about this person that I am linked to for life? Right? Think about the way you're thinking about God and money. And where does that take me? See, our stories lead us somewhere. And then the final thing is this. To get the right story, to make sure we have stories that lead to life and hope and fullness and peace and joy, cling to the community of God. We need some work on this one. Here's what Asaph says. He says, if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Until, here's the turning point. Here's where it all flips over for him. Here's where he starts to discover the right story. Until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Then I started to see this story a little differently. Do you see what Asaph does here? He goes to church. He goes to church. He goes to be in God's presence. He goes to be with God's people. He goes to hear God's word. And the implications of the, of the way this psalm is written tell us that perhaps Ahas, Asaph hasn't been there in a while. It's like he's having all these struggles. This story is overwhelming him. And then it's like, until I went to the sanctuary. It's like, oh, I haven't been to church in a while. I haven't been with God's people for a while. I haven't sat in the presence of the living God for a while. And now... I have, and things begin to turn. See, friends, maybe we need to let God reshape the stories that we're playing in our minds. Doubt wants to isolate us. It wants us to think that it's okay to be alone. You know what I find people, when they struggle, when they're struggling with sin, when they're struggling with fear, when they're struggling with doubt, the first thing they do is they leave community. They walk away from the church. Right? Because we have this false sense that the church is a place where you'll be judged if you walk in here with doubts. No, it's not. We all have doubts. You should run to the church. You should run to the people of God. Now, not every single person in this room needs to know your doubts, but some people do. Some people do. See, now, the story Asaph is telling himself has changed. In the beginning, he said, you know, those evil, vile people, they have everything and they're so blessed and I have nothing. And then by the end, he says this, He's talking about them again now. He says, surely you have placed them on slippery ground. Remember whose foot was going to slip at the beginning? And now he's starting to see it differently. Oh, you're the one with the slippery shoes, right? You cast them down to ruin. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. And here's, here's the imagery here. You ever, you ever have dreams? Okay, listen, there's two kinds of people in the world. Those who remember their dreams and those who don't. Okay, get ready to raise your hand for one. I remember my dreams. I don't remember my dreams. I remember some of my dreams. Okay, <laughs> all right. Most of us are in that third category, but I was trying to polarize this a bit. Um, but here's what he's saying. He's saying, it seems like you're in a dream, it feels so real. You know, especially if it's a bad dream, right? You're just terrified, you ever wake up and you're sweating, and you wake up and instantly it's over. Instantly you realize that all of this time, all of this story that you've been living, it's a false story and it's done. And if it's a really fun dream, you're bummed. Um, if it's a, you know, if, if you're playing for the Chicago Bulls in the championship next to Michael Jordan, it was a great dream. You're like, oh, bummer. But if it was like a nightmare, you're like, yay. And he says, that's like the lives of these evil, wicked people. It seems like they have it all, but it's going to end just like that. 
See, now all of a sudden the story is changing in Asaph's brain. Amazing stuff. And let me ask you something here. Here's what's crazy about this. He's got this radical shift, right? This radical shift of, of, of his experience and his story. Has anything changed? Has anything in this situation changed? Are these evil people in this story suddenly like suffering? And has Asaph had a windfall of cash and success and popularity? Nothing's changed. Everything in his world that's physical and tangible that he can touch looks exactly the same as it did a week ago when he was like mired in depression and doubt and thought he was like the victim of the world. Nothing's changed. The only thing that's changed is the story he's decided to let play in his brain and accept as true. That's it. See, that's the power of letting God shape your perspective. That's the power of coming into the community of faith and saying, here are my doubts, here are my struggles, and allowing brothers and sisters in Christ to listen to you and speak to you and offer God's word to you and give truth to you. That's why you come to listen to these sermons. I don't spend 20 hours a week. Pastor Matt doesn't spend 35 hours a week. It takes him longer than me. No, I don't, I don't think that's true, actually. I think it's opposite of that. But we don't spend time just because... It's fun. It's because we believe, I believe fully, the word of God preached and received, heard and like soaked into your brains through your ears has the power to utterly change and transform you. That's why we gather. That's why when you wake up on Sunday, you shouldn't just say, you know, maybe we should go, maybe we shouldn't. These songs we sing, they're songs of life and hope and they reshape your story. They get stuck in your brain through those melodies and they help you live the right story with the living God. I can't be more emphatic about this. God wants to change your story. He wants to change your perspective. He wants you to see something in a new way. Right out in the hallway out here, You'll notice this. When you leave today, try and walk down this hallway so everyone can just exit these doors and walk this way. There's some art on the walls. Of course, Michelle Winter put it up, right? <laughs> and it's this artist who's taking pictures of rust. He's taking pictures of decay and disintegration. He's taking taking pictures of your car that was once worth a lot, now worth a very little This is the most depressing art in the world. And yet when you look at it, you know what you'll see? It's beautiful. I promise that. Oh, it's on the screen. Okay. Um, It's beautiful. You see, we all need the help of one another and the word of God and the presence of God and the gathering of God's people to help us see things from a new perspective. To help us to start to play a new story in our minds. And Asaph ends this psalm with a new story. And it's a story that instead of bringing him down, is lifting him up. is giving him life and encouragement and optimism and hope and peace and all the things that you long for in your life. And now he's got it. Why? Because everything's changed in his world? No, but because there's a new story that he's received from the living God. And he says this, Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. Friends, my freshman year in college, I went through the driest, most difficult time of my faith in my entire life. 
And if you were to ask me, Dave, what pulled you out of that place? What changed the story in your brain? What helped you get through that season of hesitation and mind tearing and doubt? Here's how I'd answer. I have no idea. There wasn't some magic book I read or some preacher, but here's what I do know. The community of faith on that little Hastings College campus did something in my soul that I cannot explain, helped me see God in a new way and look at my story with fresh eyes. And I walked out of that year, that year of faith and struggle, with the strongest faith I've ever had. Faith that eventually led me into the ministry. You see, the pathway to faith and trust and life, it often leads right through the valley of doubt. So don't run from doubt. Consider the story you're playing. Critique the story and then allow the community of faith, the people of God, the word of God, God himself, alive in his people, to change your story. And the place that we go every week to just remember the foundation of our story is this table. Because the very heart of this story is this story. God loves you and accepts you and receives you even when you're a doubter through the death and resurrection of his son. So we come to this table every week, not just to go through routine, but to say, God, freshen up my story. Put my story back in place. Put my story right back on top of your story. So this morning, I'm going to invite you to the table. I'm going to invite you to the communion table to receive the elements. Take them back to your seat and hold on to them. We're going to receive them together as one community. But as you come to the table this this morning, Allie and the team are going to sing this song over you. It's called Steadfast. And I know some of you don't like it when we sing during communion. I, I know. I know. I'm hearing you. After the song, I'm going to give you a few minutes just to sit and think in quiet. And then we're going to receive the elements together. But here's what I want you to do today. Just ask God this one question. God, is there a story lodged in my mind that you want me to consider, critique, and bring before you? Is there a story lodged in my mind you want me to consider, critique, and then bring before you? Ask him to reveal something. Some of you know that story right now. That story is just right in the forefront of your brain. Some of you are digging, but ask the Holy Spirit to reveal it. Come receive the elements. Bring them back to your seat. Hold on to them. We'll take them together in just a moment.